0: Okay, um, we've been moving through Acts. Uh, we're finally out of chapter 8 and into chapter 9. Um, I think we spent three weeks in chapter 8. But um, this week we're with, with Paul. And what, uh, what we've noticed happening here is that as the church started, as it kind of got its beginning, it started doing good things. It started uh, doing the things that God intended for Israel to do in the beginning. And what we notice. Is that as the church went about doing good things, it threatened kind of the power structure. Some people felt threatened by them doing good, uh, because the, the power structure that was in place at the time kind of leveraged the need, um, of the people. And the church came in and started filling those needs and doing good things. And the, the temple, which is where the power was in Jerusalem, started uh, losing some power. And so they began to respond with persecution. Um, first we found them uh, threatening Peter, don't preach in the name of Jesus anymore. Then they arrested him for a while, and an angel set him free, and he went back to preaching. And then finally they beat him. Um, and uh, and then Stephen is out preaching, kind of doing good things. He's kind of a rock star in the church at the time. And they, uh, they stoned Stephen. And this is where the persecution first kind of gets real. And um, so everybody has to run. They flee. They scatter. And a guy named Philip, who um, probably wasn't from Jerusalem, so wouldn't have had some of the kind of natural, um, almost racisms, that were uh, normal for Jerusalem against Samaritans, goes right up into Samaria, which nobody had done yet, because the Jews didn't even talk to the Samaritans. Um, let alone um, wish them well. And so Philip goes up there not knowing, you know, these, not having these reservations and preaches Christ and they're happy to accept. And so the Samaritans start getting saved and the apostles kind of have to come up and validate because it was really hard for them to imagine a Samaritan worshiping Christ, like a Samaritan doing good, that, that a Samaritan might be on their team. And so they go up to kind of validate and the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans the same way He had on the early church of Jerusalem, and um, and there's no denying that. And so the uh, apostles kind of have a new uh, mission field if you want to call it that. And and it says that they as they're on they journeyed back to Jerusalem. They just started kind of hitting city by city in Samaria on their way back down. They now have a new place to preach. In the midst of this, Philip kind of gets called south. and We talked about this last week where he witnesses to an Ethiopian who is most likely an Ethiopian Jew from Beth Israel, that kind of small uh, Jewish community that had been in Ethiopia for uh, a long time at this point. Um, and this is where we kind of get into uh, today's story because now we find out that this persecution that started in Jerusalem and they kind of had to flee Jerusalem to get away from it is going to chase them. So the persecution is no longer localized. Uh, the people have scattered and left, and now the persecution is going to scatter as well. Paul kind of gets a letter from the temple and says, please give me permission to chase these no good, you know, whatever's through the, through the countryside and drag them back here so we can punish them. And so the persecution is now going to go mobile. And at the center of it is basically one guy. And here's how it starts. It says, uh, and this is when we go back to the stoning of Stephen. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Do I feel really loud everybody? A little louder than you? Know. No? Okay. Alright. Uh, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And the very next chapter, that's basically the end of chapter 7. Chapter 8 starts, now Saul was consenting to his death. And at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. As for Saul, he made a havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And in chapter 9, starts this way. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters of them to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way whether men or women, he might bring them bound for Jerusalem. So just so we hold this narrative together, we've got the apostles were threatened and beaten. And then Stephen goes out and preaches and he gets stoned. The persecution kind of expands from Stephen and the uh, the disciples have to flee it. And now Paul is taking that persecution and chasing them with it. So wherever they go, he is now bound to go find them. So basically... Saul is at the heart of this whole persecution. He's the one now driving this kind of pursuit of Christians. And just so we know, this is this isn't a guy who just believes a little differently. This isn't a guy who maybe, you know, is, is similar but there's a few key theologies that are off. This isn't a guy that dresses different or uses unsavory language. Or, you know, worships differently. This is a guy who is hell-bent on destroying the church. Okay, this is an enemy. This isn't just somebody who's different. This is a guy who wants the church stopped. Okay, this is a real uh, a real enemy of the church at the time. And before we get into this story, we do have to lay a little bit of historical groundwork. No picking on me. That's what we do. Um, Stephen's murder... Just so we know, we talked about this a little bit. Um, he was stoned, which was an acceptable form of of uh, capital punishment in the Torah. There's like four of them, and some of them are pretty brutal. One of them strangulation. I was studying this, and they, they couldn't hang anybody because uh, there was prohibitions against hanging people. So what they would do is they would tie a rope around somebody, and two guys would get on either side of the rope and just pull as hard as they could until the guy in the middle was strangled to death. This was... This was one of their forms of capital punishment. It's terrible. And stoning was the same way. The way they they were uh, told to stone people was to take them to a ledge and push them off. And, um, and if they survived, you dropped rocks on them until they didn't. Um, and so that's how Stephen would have died. And this was an acceptable form of persecution except, of capital punishment, except Rome had taken away the Sanhedrin's right to capital punishment, they were no longer allowed uh, to murder to kill people as as a crime, uh, and this and we see this in Jesus's uh, persecution. Um, but when you read historians, we find out that that was very very rarely um, enforced. For the most part, the Sanhedrin never stopped uh, capital punishment. They it was even though it was forbidden from Rome, nobody really enforced it, which kind of makes Jesus's death a little bit unique. And we see Pilate, when they brought Jesus to him, says, uh, you take him and judge him according to your laws. Like, that's what Pilate was used to. Like, why are you bringing someone to me? Well, this isn't what we do. Like, you guys take care of this your own way. And then they they evoke the Roman law. They said it's not legal or lawful for us to put anybody to death. And this is kind of interesting because in basically, uh, most likely the Sanhedrin wanted Jesus to be tried by the Romans because the Roman form of capital punishment um, for non-Romans—Romans got their heads cut off. If you, it's quick, it's clean. Well, not clean, but uh, it's quick and easy. If uh, if you were a Roman and you got sentenced to death, it was considered an honor to have your head cut off. And so, crucifixion was what they did to lower-class citizens and non-Romans. And I think the 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 Sanhedrin would have known this, and they wanted because there's this verse in the Old Testament that says anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed, um, I think they wanted to basically try to invalidate Jesus' Messiahship by seeing him murdered with Roman uh, methods rather than Jewish methods. But what's interesting is that was prophesied that that's how the Messiah would be killed. So in trying to it, like basically invalidate Jesus' Messiah claim to the being Messiah, they actually wound up validating it, which is kind of interesting. But we see back here with Stephen that they're kind of back to their old ways. With Stephen, they kind of go back, they didn't take Stephen to Pilate. They didn't, you know, kind of go through the proper legal channels. They just stone him themselves. So this is kind of a rogue group here. They're not really operating within the law. They're kind of uh, taking the law into their own hands. And something in Stephen's death, really, or Stephen's last words and kind of last sermon, really sets him off. I mean, the Bible even says they like stopped their ears and charged him. Like something happens here that uh, that really gets him cranked up. And this is kind of interesting. There's a verse in the Old Testament that most Christians read, and we kind of, it's weird, and we all know it's weird, but we just kind of take it in course because there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that's weird. But it's, it's, uh, it's a highly controversial passage to Jews, and it's Ezekiel 1. Ezekiel has this vision of really kind of the throne room and the chariot of God. And it's, and if you've ever read it, there's, there's cherubim whose wings overlap the other one's wings, and they have multiple faces and eyes inside of eyes. And the chariot has wheels, and inside the wheels, there's other wheels. And there's this weird, really hard to picture. But um, and most of us just read it, and it's just one of those kind of freakish prophetic things. Like we don't really try to understand it. And has anybody ever read the passage or is kind of familiar with that weird passage at the beginning of Ezekiel? Um, to Jews, this is a huge passage. This is a, like, they have a real problem with this passage for two reasons. Number one, Ezekiel receives this passage, it says, while he's in Babylon. And they didn't think that was possible. You've got to remember, this is they're very territorial. So the God of Israel is the God of the promised land. And kind of, even though they believe he's the God of everything, like when you went to the promised land is when you got kind of revelations from God. And so for, for Ezekiel to get a revelation while outside of the promised land is, is troublesome. And they have a problem with that. And the second thing is um, he's claiming to see God. Ezekiel sees there's a verse and I think I, I did put it on there. Uh, it says, And above the firmament, over their heads, this is the cherubim, was a likeness of a throne, in appearance like a sapphire stone. On the likeness of the throne was a likeness with an appearance of a man, high above it. Also, from, from the appearance of his waist and upwards I saw, as it were, a color of amber, and with the appearance of fire all around, all around within it. And from the appearance of his waist and downward I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire with brightness all around it. So Ezekiel's claiming to see basically God, a a humanoid figure standing above the throne in heaven. And this really messes with some Jewish theologies because you can't see God. If you remember when Moses asked to see God's glory, God said, I'll hide you in the rock and I'll pass by so you can kind of see the backside of my glory. And it's a it's a big theology in Judaism that you can't see the face of God and live. And so, basically, Jews have a really hard time with this passage and it has spawned what we call, I gotta see if I can say it right, Merkava uh, mysticism. This is a thing in Judaism and it was, they were kind of dabbling with it because you gotta remember this is, this happens in Babylon. So this is completely Second Temple Judaism. Um, this isn't, Strictly Old Testament, this is at the tail end of the Old Testament, and there were these Mirchava mystics who would try to replicate ezekiel 's vision. They would kind of meditate, trying to invoke a, a, a chariot or a temple vision. They were trying to see God, and some of the some of the mystics. Um, in the Hekalot writings, I don't think I'm saying that right, but they would actually give techniques and kind of formal liturgies for invoking like a temple vision. If you wanted to see the throne room of God, they had like ways of doing it. But the Orthodox Jews had gotten so frustrated with with the mystics that they had actually forbidden, in the Talmud, it actually forbids studying or offering any commentary on Ezekiel 1. Like a rabbi is not even allowed to offer what he thinks things are they just read it at the beginning of Shavuot every year and that's the only thing you do with it. You're not allowed to really teach on it or offer any commentary just because it's too weird and they don't like it. And so there's always been kind of this funny division between those who believe in uh, Ezekiel's vision, what's called the, uh, the mystics, and then those who don't. And this was being tinkered with in the first century. Um, it really actually caught ground in the medieval period. That's where, um, and it, it kind of grew into what we call Kabbalah. Anybody familiar with Jewish Kabbalah at all? Um, it's a. I won't get into that. That would take too long. But um. Uh, but it was really normal in the first century. Rabbis would try to have these visions. They would try to replicate Ezekiel's vision, and the ones who couldn't seem to do it would use their failure as like more evidence. Like I tried it, it didn't work. Obviously, it's not real. Um, and then others would come out and say they had a vision of the thing. And it was kind of this funny division. Here's why that's important. We don't have any idea if Saul was a mystic or not. But when, when Stephen said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This was not have been taken as just a random statement from a dying man. Uh, in that day, this had all the weight of of kind of a culture war behind it when he basically what Stephen was claiming was to have a um, a mirkava, uh vision and that 's how Paul would have heard it that 's how these people would have heard it and for those that were mystics. It would have been like, oh heck no! Did a Christian just have a temple vision? Like it would have, it would have frustrated that he was claiming to have a temple vision as as a Christian. And if they weren't mystics, if if, if these people weren't mystics, and most likely the Sanhedrin was not, um, then it would have frustrated that not only is this guy a Christian, which we don't like, but he's also trying to pull that kind of trump card. You know how some people say, well, the Lord told me, and they kind of use that as like a as a trump card to 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 do whatever they want. Like well, the, well. The, the Lord wanted me to confront you with this brother and then they say something really nasty and you're like, did God really tell you to tell me that? I didn't feel like God. But anyway, the, these visions were those kind of trump cards. Like if you could claim to have, you know, a throne room vision, then, you know, you're obviously in with God. And so, for Stephen to, to make this claim, for him to, to make this statement... They would have heard that Stephen was claiming to be a mystic. That he was claiming to have a throne room vision, thereby validating everything he had just taught. And that just drove him crazy. So most likely, because it's that very next verse that it says they stopped their ears, charged him and stoned him. So something in this vision Stephen has uh, really incites him. The reason this is so important is because of the nature of Saul's conversion. When Saul is on the road to Damascus, um, the nature of of his conversion would have qualified as a uh, vision. It says, As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads so he trembling and astonished said Lord what do you want me to do and the Lord said to him arise and go to the city and you will be told what you must do and before we go any further you have to imagine how devastating this would have been for Paul like he just murdered a guy and now in a literally a flash from heaven he realizes not only was that guy right but that guy was having a true vision of God that he murdered um, someone who ultimately was more right than he was. So Saul is literally carrying the weight of that. And it, and, and most of his writing, when you get into how he felt about himself and the way he, he constantly said, I am the chiefest of all sinners. Like when you see the weight Paul kind of carried as you get deep into his writings, you kind of see that I don't think he ever let this go. Like to 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 be this kind of murderous over somebody claiming to have a vision of God and then almost immediately have your eyes open to, that was me. That was me that he was seeing. Had to be almost unbearable. One of the things I love of what Paul does here is the second he he has this vision, there's no questions. There's no, but what about that one verse? But you know, what about the verse that says that... Uh, that uh Elijah was supposed to come first. Like he doesn't get theological, he doesn't get like tangled up in it. what about all this stuff I've always been taught. How am I gonna uh, he just goes, Okay God, what am I supposed to do? Which is awesome. That's like that's like deep commitment. His only question in the midst of this moment is, what do I do? I think most of us have like experienced when it's that real, when something happens to us and they're like, What do I do? How do I fix it? True commitment. And what I, what, what I think is most revealing to me and hopefully to our church is Jesus' answer. It says, Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. This is interesting because Jesus just rolled back the heavens to reveal himself to Paul. Literally just kind of opens the heavens, shines a light, and talks to Paul one on one which is super cool. So now he's in like a face-to-face, person-to-person conversation with Paul. And what he does with that moment is hands him off. He just hands Paul off. Watch this. He says, And Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road uh, as you came, he sent me to you that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus sent Ananias and despite his fear and, you know, stress and worry, he goes. Uh, And he takes care of, he prays for the great enemy of the church. And who takes care of him? Because it says he didn't eat for three days. So who, who takes him in and takes care of him when he gets there? It says, so when he had received food and strength and Paul spent some days with the disciples... At Damascus. So it's the church that cares for Paul. And he immediately goes out to preach in the synagogues. He preaches Christ and the Jews get very upset and they want to kill him. And who saves his life? The church does. Then the disciples took him by night and let him down through the wall in a large basket. You gotta remember, the church is this small, powerless, kind of tiny group of people in these peripheral towns around Jerusalem. The core of the, of the Christian existence right now is still in Jerusalem. So these are just like small pockets of powerless people caring for Paul and saving his life and sneaking him out of the city. And when he gets to Jerusalem, the church is completely terrified of him because they knew who he was and who invites him in but another Christian. But Barnabas took him and brought him into the disciples and he declared to him how he had seen the Lord on the road and how he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus and the Jews in Jerusalem when they got mad at Paul and wanted to kill him who saves him again but the church when the brethren found out that's the Christians they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him on to Tarsus so Jesus' big move with a guy like Saul who becomes Paul who writes two thirds of the New Testament Jesus' big move when he touches this guy's heart is to give him to the church and let the church kind of midwife him into the kingdom. Jesus didn't like personally one-on-one say okay Saul here's what this is going to look like we're going to sit down together first we're going to get rid of those things on your eyes and we're going to clear things up and then we're going to here's our game plan. All he does is says I'm Jesus who you persecuted. Get into the church. And he hands him off on the church. And the church feeds him and saves his life and opens up to him and accepts him. Helps him forget his past. Jesus doesn't miraculously do all this. He just reveals himself to Paul and lets the church do the rest. So how do we respond to this? First thing I want to, I guess, make sure we don't miss is that this is the hands and feet of Jesus. Like if Jesus touches somebody's heart and He wants them in the kingdom and He wants them to be part of His family, He dumps them on us. He drops them right here and says, feed them. Love on them. Pray for them. Protect them. Save their life if you have to. Whatever you have to do, bring them in. And the church does that. We do that. If someone shows up here, maybe it wasn't a mirchava vision with the heavens rolling open, but the Holy Spirit's tugging on their heart and working on them. And Jesus' big move is to drop them right in here. Say, okay guys, love on them. Feed them, take care of them. Step in and be there for them. Help them let go of their past. Can you imagine? This is not but a few weeks, really, after Stephen's death. And I don't know if you remember, but it says that when they buried Stephen, there was, there was, uh, megas, uh, uh, grieving, like great grieving, and the, the, the direct translation of the Greek word is chest beating. Like that kind of grief. But they're literally beating their chest in sorrow. And now Saul walks in the door, like in the midst of their grief, Saul walks right back in the door, the guy who had caused the pain, And what can the church do but love him? And they were terrified of him. Barnabas brings him in, and you know there had to be people that were like, "No." And then they find out that the, the Jews in the city want to kill him. And they have every opportunity to go, Brother, that's just consequences. Like, we love you and you're part of the family, but sin has consequences. Sorry. They could have just let the Jews have him. And probably felt pretty justified in that. Like, we loved him, we gave him a meal, and, you know, sin has consequences. Sorry, Paul. Probably could have, felt, probably could have found some Bible to back that. But they didn't. They snuck him out. we got to protect this guy we have to take care of these guys one of ours now so this is what Jesus uses this is how he gets people into the kingdom through us second thing I want to catch Saul was public enemy number one absolutely bent on destroying the church and the church responds to him with love and acceptance they overcome their fear and their hate and their pain and their grief and they love him and what I love about that is here's the consequences this whole kind of this whole pericope this whole section that has Paul when Paul first shows up in the story to now it's it's the end of chapter 7 all the way to, the, to basically the first third of chapter 9 is really about this persecution that Paul's in the beginning of here's how it starts As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And once Jesus touches his heart and the church takes him in, this is kind of the concluding verse. It says, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified. And they were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they were multiplied. You've got this guy that hates them. Hates them. Hates them. They love him in return. Basically make him one of them. And the whole church has peace. Like it, The way that they stop the persecution, the way that this, this persecution, this the first wave of persecution the church has ever faced, the way they end it is by embracing the persecutor. They loved the one who was causing the pain and he became one of them and the persecution ends. What is the cross way to deal with an enemy? It's love, and it's hard. Like when Jesus said, "April, you're making me real nervous right now." <laughs> when I've got a pregnant woman sitting in the car going, "Okay, ah. you can let you can let him know someday that he completely interrupted a sermon before he was." even I think the collective oxygen just got sucked out yeah okay Um, when we hear Jesus say you must take up your cross and follow me like what we generally do is we we come up with things that that we like and that are doable and we say this is just me taking up my cross I, I go to church I pray I read my bible You know, no, that's not a cross. A cross is a thing you are nailed to for people who hate you. That is a cross. Jesus was nailed to a cross because he loved people who hated him. So when he says, take up your cross and follow me, I don't think that's just a bland metaphor. I think it means the way you deal with hate is by letting yourself be nailed. The way you deal with the souls of the world who want nothing but your destruction is to love them. And chances are, just before you do it, you're going to say, God, if there's any other way, let this pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. I do not want to love this person if there's any other way let it pass for me I guarantee they were praying that when Barnabas walks in the door with that murderer I guarantee there was Christians going oh, not this guy anybody but this guy but not my will yours be done and this is why the table is so important Because it reminds us that at the root of this whole thing is Jesus being broken for us. And knowing it was coming, knowing it was His his burden, and He didn't want to do it, but He loved us that much.